Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, the role of religion in the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol was recently named the top religion story of 2021 by the Religion Newswriters Association. And as we approach the anniversary of that terrible event one year ago, this week we take the time to reflect on the impact of the attack and where we go from here. Today my guests are Zainab Chaudhry, the Maryland Director for the Council on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, and David Searby, a retired U.S. Foreign Service officer who is currently co-leading the project Light for America. During our conversation, we talk about the narratives that have emerged about the attack, the differences in perspectives in some Christian and Muslim circles, and what can be done to reinvent the meaning of January 6th in the years ahead. Here's my conversation with David and Zainab. Thank you to both of you for for joining me and welcome. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. A year ago on January 6th, um, I was actually in the studio in uh, Tacoma Radio talking with um, my two guests, Ibrahim Mumen um, from the historic Masjid Muhammad and David Street from Bread for the World. Um, And we happened to mention that there was a rally happening at the Capitol that, that day. Um, but most of the show was focused on the, um, the historic wins that had just happened the night before um, uh, for Georgia. progressives in, yep, in Abraham's uh, home state of Georgia, as well as the vaccines that were on the horizon. And there was generally this, this feeling of hope and optimism that was in the air for the first time really in a while as we were kicking off the new year. But then just a few hours later, the energy really just changed and was upended by this this shocking and frankly, you know, what some might say is treasonous uh, assault on the Capitol by these right wing protesters. So uh, today, as we head into the uh, as we're thinking about the, the anniversary of that attack, um, we're thinking about the the effect of those events even um, a year later. Uh, Zainab, so CARES offices are actually within eyeshot of the Capitol. And I really wanted to start by by knowing what did you or your your colleagues um, at CARE who were actually there in the office, what did they experience on, on January 6th during that attack? Yeah, thanks again so much for organizing this conversation, Jack. It's great to be here with you. Um, looking forward to how this unfolds. Um, CARE's office is national headquarters is based on Capitol Hill, about two blocks away from the Capitol building. And um, we, when this attack happened, um, when the initial rallies were organized, we were anticipating that there might be some violence. We had received, received some information um, that there were protesters who were planning to um, descend upon the Capitol. Um, there was obviously a lot of backlash from the alt-right groups regarding the outcome of the election. There were many people who were um, disputing the legitimacy and the credibility of the election itself. Um, So we were anticipating that there was gonna be some violence, but I don't think anybody really could have predicted or who wasn't in the loop about the planning could have predicted that it would have been to this scale. Fortunately, or I guess, unfortunately, however you wanna consider it, um, the office was not occupied at the time because of the pandemic. So 
care has been um, has implemented a policy of virtual uh, working from home. Um, so we didn't have employees who were in the headquarters in the office building during the time of the protests or the uh, actual attacks itself. What the what some are calling you know the act of sedition on the Capitol, but um, we were very concerned about not only property damage and the implications for the organization, but more broadly, what this is gonna mean for our country. Um, so luckily nobody in our organization was physically harmed. Uh, we were not in the building at the time um, because of the work from home policy that was in effect, but it was extremely alarming to see events unfold on our television screens. David, I know that part of what you are, are working on is to, to help us think about the narrative around what is the legacy of January 6th. And I would love for you to, to uh, share what does January 6th uh, mean to you on this anniversary? I remember when it happened, I was in my home here in Washington, D.C., and I was horrified like so many people. I'm a lifelong Republican. Um, I've had some very serious misgivings about what's happened in the Republican Party. And I expected this to be the, the end of leaders who you know, supported what happened there. And I've been shocked and very dismayed to see that that hasn't happened yet. So tell, tell us a little bit about January 6th um, for, for you the, in, in a broader context, what is is January 6th as a as a date for Episcopalians. It's the day of the epiphany. It's uh, it's an, a pretty important um, moment in the in the Christian calendar uh, for Christians in general. It's an important day for the Greek for the Greek and Russian Orthodox churches. It's called the Feast of Lights, January 6th in all of Latin America, where I spent most of my career in the foreign service. It's called the day, the day, the Dia de los Reyes Magos, the Three Wise Men, and kids get more presents on January sixth than they do on Christmas Day in those in those Latin countries. So it's a really important day for uh, many Christians around the country. So it's it's a shame. It would be a real shame if we just sit back and let it become in the United States forever a day of division, anger, and and hatred. So if we if we think of January sixth as as really a pivotal date in our nation's history, it, it may very well you know go down as as a date you know one of these remarkable dates on on our calendar, like July fourth, you know, infamously like nine eleven. What what is the opportunity that we have right now as a country when we think about the legacy of this date? I think you kind of. Uh, put the two key elements out there. It's a difficult, challenging day to define right now. But I hope that over time, we can look at January 6th with elements of both July 4th, the idea of um, unity, hopefulness, um, and elements of 9-11, where we say, that was a horrible day and we wanna make sure this never happens again. What can we do as a nation and working with our partners internationally and well, we're partners here in the nation for January 6th to make sure that this horror of January 6th never happens again. Uh, Zainab, I'd, I'd love to have your your take on on that as well, just thinking about what the, the legacy could be for this date. What, what happened last year uh, was not just an attack on the Capitol. It was an attack on democracy. It was an attack on the rule of law within our country. 
And when we talk about what the implications of this are, we definitely need to focus on healing, but we also need to focus on justice, right? There needs to be accountability, and that needs to be a big part of the conversation when we talk about how do we move forward. Because right now, our country is still vulnerable to these kind of attacks. Justice has not been fully delivered. Um, what happened that day is something that I think really shook uh, many Americans to the core of our being, because this is something that we um, expect happening in different parts of the world. We never really expected it to happen within our own country. I think we have like a false sense of security that something like this could never happen. Maybe it's American exceptionalism. Some might say it's, you know, various factors that, that led to this bubble or cocoon of safety that we had. And that bubble was ruptured on January 6th last year. Um, and so we, we definitely, uh, you know, can use faith. Faith is a powerful motivator to bring people together. I think, especially when we focus on the commonalities within the diverse faith communities, the preservation of life, the um, eradication of societal ills that lead to lack of opportunities amongst, amongst diverse communities that um, leads to crime and different sorts of injustices. Um, you know, the, these can be used to help unite and heal and build a stronger nation. And we need that within our country. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and this morning, my guests are Zainab Chaudhry, the Maryland Director for the Council on American-Islamic Relations, and David Searby, a retired U.S. Foreign Service officer who is currently co-leading the project Light for America. I want to return to a point that, Zainab, you said around uh, this issue of not just healing, but also justice. And I think that an unavoidable part of reflection on the events of January 6th is the understanding that really if this had been any other type of group other than predominantly white men, if it had been- like Many a, Christians in there too, you know? <laughs> Christians, exactly. Um, using, you know, very overt Christian iconography and, and statements and so forth. If it had uh -huh. been a similar a assault by black and brown Muslims, for example, it would have almost certainly been a bloodbath, not just at the Capitol, but probably in retaliation on individuals and groups around the country. And I wanted to see, is that is that your understanding as well? Is that your perspective as well, Zainab? What do you what do you feel about that? And, and how do you wrestle with with really this um, gross uh, exercise of, of what could only be described as white privilege, really? No, absolutely. Um, you, I think you hit the nail right on the head. It, what part of the work that CARE does is we assess um, how, uh, for example, terrorist incidents are reported within our country when the perpetrators of these crimes are Muslim or Black or Brown or Arab versus when they're white. And there has been like a clear discrepancy um, in how these incidents have been reported, which unfortunately fuels Islamophobia, anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-refugee sentiment, um, anti-Black and Brown um, sort of like, you know, uh, um, bigotry. And so it, it wasn't surprising surprising to see that, but it was deeply disappointing and alarming and to totally unacceptable, um, especially when this this is a, a attack playing out on national television at, you know, at our nation's, nation's capital that was clearly emboldened by the outgoing president of the United States. Um, you know, it, it, I think, really shook shook many people into realizing that this this is not acceptable like what's happening here and i think mike pence um 
his role in, in, in making sure that the votes were counted um, and that you know the the efforts of the protesters were not successful, the rioters were not successful, uh, was really instrumental as well. Like just to give credit where due, um, but it, it was just completely mind-boggling that this was happening. We know that if this was a, a crowd of, of Muslim people, this would have been automatically. We would have seen SWAT teams. We would have seen like a very different response, a very militarized response. Same as if it was um, black or brown protesters, it would have been a very different response. The other point I want to make quickly is the hand holding and the sugar coating and the sort of like kind of softening the, the 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 accountability aspect of those individuals who were taken into custody or who who were being interrogated or questioned was also starkly different. Uh, you know the the level to which they were being granted consideration, they were given access to resources and and comforts even when they were um, you know imprisoned. It, it, it just was something that we don't typically see in, in minority communities. So then coming back to this question about justice, what, from your perspective, does justice look like in this situation? What does that accountability look like in this situation? Well, the fact later are still in the process of still corralling, um, you know, our justice system still has not delivered. We're still working on um, you know, identifying even who all of the perpetrators within this, within this, within this attack were. Um, you know, the, the fact that so many of them have not been brought to justice yet, meaning that there hasn't been accountability for the crimes that were committed, for the lives that were taken, for the property that was destroyed, for the, the um, extent to which this, this attack affected our country. There hasn't been accountability for that. And part of the fear, I think, overarching fear is that what this essentially would lead to is, you know, the opportunity or the, the emboldening of a similar incident again in the future. Um, you know, we understand, I think Americans understand that this is a long-winded process, that we're a lot of people who are involved in organizing this, but there needs to be a, a, a very um, clear, very concise, very bold, um, moved by a Congress, by the Department of Justice, that would deter future attacks like this. And a year on, we are still, our country is still waiting for justice for, um, you know, for, for the incident, for the attack. Uh, David, there was recently a, a, a Quinnipiac University poll in the fall that said that two thirds of Republicans said that they don't actually view the riot at the Capitol as an attack on government and that 77% of Republicans say that Trump bears no responsibility or not much responsibility for storming the Capitol. And in fact, there's there's evidence that that even there's a, a large, if not growing group that actually flips it and considers that it's the other side that is are, are the ones that are responsible. So I'm really curious how when you think about these notions of of what what Zainab was just reflecting on and, and my comments earlier about about this this being an indication really a a um, an absurd almost and and horrifying display of white privilege how does that land in in the in the conversation for you and was that realization part of of discussions with you and and folks that you know in in more conservative social circles yeah, so um, I completely agree that on the issue of justice, that justice has not been served yet. And I would be the first to note the, the very strong uh, 
uh, some of the Christian movements that underlie, underlie some of the um, wrong information. I think we do have to distinguish between the people who willfully ignored the truth, and now there, there's evidence coming out that people in certain conservative media were willfully misrepresenting the truth, and the people who have been manipulated into believing one lie or another. But it's also disconcerting that I've seen it myself on social media. I do try to keep friends who don't think like me, and that includes a lot of people on who are Trump supporters on my social media, even though it's infuriating sometimes to, to, to listen to them. And I've actually seen them play both angles, where on the one hand, they would say, no, the, the, those people are patriots. And then two, oh, no, no, they're, all, they're a bunch of FBI Antifa provocateurs, FBI informant. And you've actually, I've actually seen people play both sides of that. And the, 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 the broader point is, when I, when I, when I from, from the point of view of my organization, Light for America, or the, 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 what I'm trying to create here, our product, our most, there are people fighting those specific battles and they should, should fight them. What we wanna do is we wanna, instead of looking backwards and saying, well, no, 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 these weren't Antifa people. No, 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 these weren't FBI informants. Um, yes, I wanna look forwards and develop common principles that we can all address, including things like we need to empower independent election processes that aren't, you know, basic premises like that, that are very hard to say, no, 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 election processes shouldn't be independent. They should be run by the ruling party. You see what I mean? We want to move forward into broader general principles to make sure that um, the next elections, that we can play a role in, in protecting the next elections. But I totally agree with Zainab that there, there has to be justice on the past elections. That's from a personal point of view. And, and, and I'm rooting for the people who are fighting for justice based on what happened in 2021. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Jack Gordon. And this morning, my guests are David Searby, a retired U.S. Foreign Service officer, who is currently co-leading the project Light for America, and Zainab Chaudhry, the Maryland Director for the Council on American-Islamic Relations. So you write on your website that you re- had a recent revelation of sorts about the, the truth of systematic racism. Uh, so tell us about what your perception of, of racial inequity was up until that point, and what were the things that shifted your perspective on these issues? My revelation on racism was obviously like so many other white people was um, in the George Floyd incident and realizing that, you know, this idea that there's a real problem with cops doing bad things to people of color um, and not really understanding that. Um, Within my own church, I, I, I attend a, a pretty liberal church in Northwest Washington, um, realizing that there really is um, racism and anti-racism. You know, the, 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 uh, the, 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 classic, the classic book, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, you can't 
can't be a white person who just says, well, I'm not racist, so I'm not part of the problem. That's not good enough anymore. Those two revelations um, uh, were, were pretty important to me and how to communicate that to skeptics and, and people who, who really just don't get, you, you have to be anti-racist to get rid of racism. You can't just sit back and not be a personal racist. It seems like no matter how many pieces of evidence um, that somebody who may seem to have an opposing point of view politically, culturally, what have you, has, it seems like we've been so balkanized in our, in, in our society right now that folks are, are unwilling to really um, listen to even scientific evidence like, like you have when it comes to, to showing systematic racism. So I'm curious, how is it that you and um, your partner, Corey, are, are trying to create these inroads, particularly with people from your own politi political persuasion, your own um, upbringing and background? So Corey's also a Christian. He used to be a Republican, now he's independent. Um, he, uh, he and I believe that the better platform now is Light for America, where we unite people of faith to be leaders on unity, including one day we hope issues of racial justice. But that's kind of down the road in terms of adding the racial justice element to what we're doing. First, we want to create this network of people of faith, people who are passionate, people, even atheists who believe in something bigger than themselves and use that group of people who agree to disagree on a whole lot of things like theology and God and salvation and stuff like that, but do agree on the need for justice, do agree on protecting democracy. So we think that the, the January 6th um, symbol can be very powerful for one day uniting a group of people who can address issues like racial justice. My hope in starting Light for America is that we can find partners and like-minded people to start redefining now what January 6th will be. And in the long run, 10 years from now, I don't think it's out of the question to think that we would have a quiet, prayerful, nonpartisan candlelight vigil on Capitol Hill, followed by local events with, with people singing. I'm really excited actually um, to hear about this um, initiative that David just shared briefly. And um, I'd be curious to know how CARE might be able to support either through our organization or through connecting uh, you with other organizations within the Muslim community um, that would be interested in, in partnering and um, I, I carving out a, a way to move forward. Thank you so much. Uh, we, uh, we, we can certainly talk later off after this, this uh, great opportunity that Jack has set up. But what we're doing, um, we definitely need a Muslim either to write me a prayer that I can read tomorrow. We're going to be recording our event with an, a professional photographer and videographer, but preferably have a Muslim there to read some reflections from the Muslim faith um, on issues of light, unity, peace, uh, those kinds of uplifting messages. Um, so we would let we would really appreciate if somebody representing CARE could join our, our, our event on Thursday uh, at seven o'clock. So 
there's going to be, we, we don't expect a huge crowd, although maybe Jack has taken care of it. You know, there's going to be a huge crowd now, but I think that we're going to over time be able to grow this idea by keeping the two basic principles of interfaith and nonpartisan and this hope of redefining January 6th alive. And just to be clear, the recording will happen tomorrow and then the actual events on Thursday. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, our event is at 7 p.m. January 6th, Thursday, after the main event, which Speaker Pelosi is associating, is doing, it starts there, people are starting to organize around 4.30 through the January democracy vigils. As I mentioned, we're not officially part of that process, although they've been very helpful. And we're working, we're giving us an information and very useful information, especially about um, you know, potential for counter demonstrators, which we haven't seen thankfully yet. And we think that this is gonna be a great opportunity at 7 p.m. We're meeting at First Street and Constitution Avenue Northwest, right, right at the Capitol below the steps. Uh, that's what our event is. So I think over our hope is to get some good photography, videography. There's a very good chance that Jamie Raskin, Representative Raskin from the 8th Congressional District of Maryland, is going to show up. He's, 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 going to, he's got a busy day, but he's been very supportive. I can tell later about how we got connected to him. I don't want to dominate the mic here too much, but um, he's, uh, he's fully aware, you know, our background. A, he knows I'm a Republican. He's totally fine showing up. And um, so I think that we have a good event that can grow over time with the right partners. And we would be extremely honored to, to support CARE and your work and, and, and hope you can support ours too. David, I think to the point that you just made about you being a Republican, that's actually something that just kind of underscores the fact that this is a nonpartisan issue that goes beyond partisan politics and faith and really speaks to some of the key kind of commonalities, as I mentioned earlier, that we have. This, this is something that when we talk about what it means to protect our and defend our democracy, um, there is no Democrat and Republican. This is something that everybody should be united behind. Um, so if Amen. you have any emails, um, in the email like information or details, I can reach out to my national team and find out who's available. I'm sure somebody would be interested. Um, I know a lot of people are out sick these days. If nobody within our organization is, we can definitely try to work within the Muslim community and see who would be the best person to come out and speak. And you don't have a preference on whether it's an imam or like a like a faith leader or just like a lay person. Whoever you think would be the best person to, to show up, we would be honored to have them. And we'll share our prayers in advance. And you guys write your own prayers. So just the basic idea is that we are going to not be focusing on, you know, there's some incredibly important specific legislation out there. And that's what the January 6th democracy vigils are for. And they're very, they're very strongly critical, those processes of what happened on January 6th and, and the people who were behind that. We're trying to avoid that idea of specific legislation and critical attack language Adopting, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Father Richard Rohr. He's a he's a um, he he he's a well-known Franciscan. Uh, heads the Center for Action and, and Contemplation, and and a very powerful uh, voice out there. And, and one of the principles of of Richard Rohr and the Center for Action and Contemplation is 
the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. And that's really all we're trying to do. We're trying to say, you know, what happened January 6th is awful. Stop. Here's what's good. Watch what we're doing. And, and that's, so we, uh, that's the kind of spirit that we're trying to adopt. I look forward to more information. And Jack, I don't mean to sideline the conversation. <laughs> yeah, Jack, you, you're letting us this ramble is, no, on. Is, you know, this is great because it's, <laughs> I, I won't say it's the first time, but I love seeing interfaith collaboration happening in real time on this show. And um, that's why we create this space <laughs> to connect people together as much to inform the audience um, as, as to connect the guests on, on the show. So I'm, I'm loving hearing uh, the connections that you're, you're making here. Absolutely. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and this morning my guests are David Searby, a retired U.S. Foreign Service officer who is currently co-leading the project Light for America, and Zainab Chaudhry, the Maryland Director for the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Zainab, for you, how is CARE similarly creating opportunities to advance interreligious cooperation and solidarity, both in Maryland and beyond? Yeah, of course. Um, so one of the events that's coming up is the there's an interfaith breakfast um, for religious freedom that's being organized by the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Howard County. Um, the CARE has been a part of each year. We're going to be a part of it again this year as well. Um, these kind of initiatives that help bring diverse groups, uh, faith groups together at the same table um, to talk about not just like the what happened on January 6th, but also like other issues that um, affect diverse faith communities is an opportunity for us to explore how we might be able to address and tackle some of these issues in a more cohesive, like holistic way. We also are very vocal when it comes to um, condemning and speaking out against bigotry and bias against other faith communities as well. Um, so even though CARE is America's largest Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization, um, if there is another house of worship, a church, a synagogue, um, a temple, um, other faith uh, you know, community that's impacted by bigotry or bias, or that's attacked or that's vandalized, we condemn that, we call for investigations, we look for opportunities to be able to work with um, faith leaders to build bridges um, on not, and also different like source legislation um, that stand to different, uh, stand to impact different faith groups. And we're always open to exploring like, you know, ways that we can work together. I think like what David mentioned earlier about what he's doing with Life for America, I think that is an example as CARE being a 501c3 nonprofit organization, we are a nonpartisan organization. Um, we are open to and receptive to ideas to collaborate with you know, different groups and organizations and individuals to build understanding and also to address a lot of the misconceptions that exist about Islam and Muslims. I think right now, one of the biggest challenges we face is the fact that there is a lot of misinformation about Islam and Muslims. And so much of what people see and read on the internet, like in, in the media, um, it's not often an accurate reflection of, of the faith tradition. And oftentimes culture gets misconstrued as religion and that helps to fuel a lot of the animosity and the misunderstandings that exist. So that interfaith dialogue is so critical to dispelling some of that misinformation and um, and really sort of like allaying some of the fears, I think that contribute to the, the kind of Islamophobia that we see in our society. CARE obviously has been at the center of a, of a lot of controversies, you know, has taken a lot of hits um, and, and heat um, from these various um, 
uh, I mean, even members of Congress, uh, you know, where where xenophobic and, and Islamic rhetoric, you know, has arguably only increased um, and particularly even during this past year. So what do you see then as, as a path forward to really create a safer country, um, not just for vulnerable minority groups like Muslims, but but even even more broadly where we can um, we can actually do something about these these deep divisions that are cultural and political? I think the two main things that stand out for me personally in this moment is holding not only elected officials, but also all individuals who have platforms and who have authority or positions of power holding them accountable. You're right, CARE does get attacked a lot. Um, and when I joined the organization seven years ago, I was not anticipating that it was going to be as um, much of a lightning rod, I think, as, as it has been in some cases. But one of the things I really appreciate about working with our organization is that we are unapologetic when it comes to defending democracy and the rights of not just our community, but also others who are impacted by injustice as well. Um, so we are effective and because of the fact that we are effective, there are attacks and attempts to undermine the work that we do and we are still here. We wear that as a badge of honor. I think any, any uh, social justice civil rights organization worth its salt um, has been similarly attacked and so um, that just means that we're doing something right. That means if we're if we're getting under skin of people who um, who don't want to hear what we have to say to address like some of the issues that are affecting our country, then we're on the right side of history. Um, and I think we have to hold our elected officials. We have to hold officials, individuals, leaders who have uh, platforms. We have to hold them accountable. Make sure that their messaging is accurate, is cohesive, is unifying. If it's not unifying, at least it's not divisive. Um, we should not have elected leaders who are scoring political points by throwing any community under the bus um, to gain you know, political favor within their, their base. And then the second point I think is that we need to create space um, to be comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. I think a lot of times what happens, especially in interfaith circles, is people sometimes like they are so careful to, to not want to offend one another, or they, they just, they want to be so politically correct that sometimes the, the conversations that need to be had aren't effective in helping to build bridges. Like they're not helpful to build relationships amongst diverse faith communities because uh, we, we just, we don't, we're not able to really get to the root of what's causing like that angst or that animosity. And so being uncomfortable um, being, comfortable, being comfortable in uncomfortable spaces, I think, is one of the key ways that we can help kind of start chipping away at some of the misunderstandings that and the fear and the anxieties, I think, especially in this political climate and with COVID and everything else that helps climate change, all the different issues that are affecting our communities. Um, you know, we, if we, if we uh, create these safe spaces to have these conversations, I think that can help sort of um, lead the way towards more unity. Thank you, David. Um, you know, for for people who have similar life experiences and circumstances to you, as you as you say on your website, somebody who grew up with uh, privileges up the wazoo. Um, what do you think is a is a critical and actionable next step to be part of the solution in this coming year? So I, I like what. Zainab uh, talked about the safe spaces. Uh, I really like the idea of focusing on faith, people of faith and redefining it to include people who are non-believers, sort of passionate non-believers, atheists, 
because they're a growing part of our community. And to really get people to understand that if you have a problem with a particular faith or you see you believe a, a faith is doing something wrong, in general, you're probably oversimplifying and kind of using the same approach of racism and, and looping everybody in to the same category. Religious extremism is a problem in every faith. And when I, I want to have conversations with a faith within the Christian community, because I think that in the Christian community, the angriest and loudest Christians are often the ones who are doing the most harm and the ones who really could be part of a solution to bring people together and find common ground are very quiet and afraid to talk about their faith. So I like the idea of people who, who want to be part of the solution speaking about their faith unashamedly and saying, I'm a Christian and I differ with other Christians. And I can probably tell you just, you're a faith show. This is a little wonky. So I just give you two examples of, of what I like to talk about when I talk about Christians. One is, is the concept of salvation in the Christian church. There's a lot of Christians who believe that if you ain't, if you haven't personally sworn up to Jesus, you're going to hell right? I get that. There are biblical references that justify that. I don't share that point of view. I read the Bible differently. And I see, I think that people who believe that other people who are not on their salvation side are going to hell, it allows you to demean them much more easily. It allows you to dehumanize them and look down on them. And it doesn't make you want to partner with them on anything because you think they're going to hell. And the second area where I disagree with a lot of my Christian uh, counterparts is Bible literalism. They, they say, oh, there's only one way to interpret the Bible. Boom. That's it. Case closed. That leads to a very closed-minded and dogmatic interpretation of things. And then again, again, I disagree with their theology, but I think it has real-world implications. It means that they just won't partner, and they, they close their minds, and they get their information from one news source and they're not open-minded to any kind of facts that don't fit their worldview. So I just, those are, those are two um, areas where I want to uh, hope in, with Light for America to oppose the weaponization of faith in our country. This is Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon. And this morning, we're talking about the anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol with Zainab Chaudhry, the Maryland Director for the Council on American-Islamic Relations, and David Sirby, a retired U.S. Foreign Service officer who is currently co-leading the project Light for America. Now, as we do every episode in the second half of our program, it's time to turn the mics over to my dear guests to ask each other some questions of their own. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning, while at the same time not being afraid to get into some interfaith-ish. Here again are Zainab and David. Well, obviously religious extremism happens in all religious faiths. And when, when, when there's religious extremism on your side, I, for example, after 9-11, I felt a very strong need to speak out against the Christians the Christian faith that was being used to drive the lies of the big lie and the QAnon conspiracy and all that. I, I feel personally responsible. I think it's harder for Muslims 
because Muslims are not the power community in the United States. So it's really challenging. And we had a, a speaker in our, our church, I think they may have been affiliated with CARE, I forget, who did an amazing job uh, of sort of how to, how to speak out against Islamic extremism without being, you know, without reinforcing that stereotype is, is, the, is the kind yeah. of uh, question I have. You know, there's, and I think part of what also makes it a lot more complicated is that, um, especially post 9-11, right? There's this, this automatic expectation that whenever there is an incident or an attack that occurs and the perpetrator happens to be Muslim or Arab, there is this expectation that Muslims around the country, around the world automatically publicly denounce that as if somehow um, our religion would condone that kind of incident. I think part of the problem is that I think similar to like other faith traditions as well, uh, but especially here in the West, um, oftentimes verses from holy texts, for example, are cherry picked and used to justify certain actions, or there is a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of like how faith should be applied. Um, and within the Muslim community, I think there are actively conversations happening about this the dichotomy that exists in terms of how the Muslim community is pigeonholed and expected to push back and resist against the stereotyping versus other faith communities that also deal with the same, but the, as you mentioned, because they're, they have more leverage or more power. They're not at the bottom of the totem pole, right? Like they have more leverage to be able to, um, to be able to reclaim their narrative. Um, I think one thing that we're seeing within, especially the younger generation of Muslims, and I say this as a first generation American, proud daughter of immigrants, um, I'm seeing in like the Gen Zs, for example, who are very excited to tell me I'm not a Gen Z or I'm, I'm a, um, apparently I'm a millennial, <laughs> like that's a bad word. Um, they're very like uh, unapologetic in their identity as Americans. And I think that they don't carry in many cases, the same kind of maybe cultural baggage, for example, um, that maybe some immigrant communities have inculcated. I think this is gonna be an ongoing conversation that we're gonna be having within our communities on how we um, not feel the need to automatically be defensive when there are incidents that happen or attacks that happen because there are still members of the Muslim community that tell me whenever something happens, the first thing they think is, dear God, don't let it be a Muslim, right? Because there's gonna be that backlash and there's that automatic kind of bracing ourselves for like, how do we respond in the, in the aftermath and the backlash of an incident if the perpetrator happens to be Muslim. I mean, I think one of the things we're also seeing is there is a more concerted effort um, to engage in interfaith dialogue and to correct perceptions of what Islam actually teaches. Like, is, you know, I think after 9-11 happened, um, I know I personally did a lot of soul searching and many other people have also shared that, you know, it, it forced us to question our identity as American and Muslims. And you know, how do you reconcile the two without feeling like you're being pigeonholed in a position where you have to have to constantly distance yourself from actions that don't represent you. It's an ongoing conversation, <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Thank you, that's a great answer. Um, the second question I had is, what advice do you have for like for America from a Muslim point of view to craft a new, a new meaning for January 6th that's more productive and helps our country um, both heal from January 6th and prevent it from happening again? Hmm. I think what you're doing right now is, is great. I think the being in, in platforms or, or using platforms and being in spaces where you can connect with members of different faith communities 
is excellent. Um, maybe reaching out to organizations like Shoulder to Shoulder, um, Campaign for Shoulder to Shoulder, um, which uh, does a lot of work around Muslim Christian dialogue, but also like more broadly interfaith dialogue. Um, and I can help make some of those connections as well. Like they could help you build like more of like an interfaith kind of a coalition um, to have support for this initiative. Um, and I think just reaching out to some of the groups who historically don't have spaces, like in these conversations, maybe even like um, the Sikh community who, even though they're not Muslim, but by virtue of the fact that they, you know, there are ignorant people who don't recognize the fact that you know, people who dress like when they're wearing the turban who are Sikh are not Muslim. There's, there's, they've dealt with a lot of the fallout from Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry. I think being as inclusive as possible and bringing in some of these other groups who historically haven't really had an opportunity to um, be like on the national stage can make the campaign more powerful because it celebrates that diversity. And um, I think. Uh, yeah, it, I'll, I'll think on this some more. If I have like different ideas, I'll definitely put it out Great. there. Um, yeah. And then I think you're supposed to ask me some questions. I am interested in learning about your journey from serving, like the, being a foreign service officer in Latin America, like in what capacity you served. Um, and then like what inspired you, like are you, if you're retired now and if you're retired from foreign service, what inspired you to come in this direction, like to, to found like for America and, and come in this, in this space. So um, I'm always capable of talking about myself. Uh, that I'm ready to answer this question. And uh, I'm just kidding. Um, the, in terms of the Foreign Service, I was blessed with an amazing career. I spent most of my time working in what's called public diplomacy, uh, helping foreign audience to like foreign audiences to like America more, hate America less. Um, that job got really hard in 2016 when I retired. So I was kind of happy not to be around and, and to have retired. Why I got into this, uh, I'm a retired guy and I just want to be, I want my children to grow up in a better uh, world. And I do, I'm an eternal optimist. I, that's why I'm still a Republican. I'm going to live another 30 years and I'm going to vote Republican again. And there are good Republicans out there. And I want to support them and make sure they stick around. Um, I think that I see a real need, as you said, for safe spaces. When you look at the fact that Officer Brian Sick, I think Sicknick was the name of the of the um, officer who was killed on on January six, or one of the. I know there were several people whose deaths were linked to the tragedy, but his was the most directly linked. Um, you know, he's beaten on the head and then died of a stroke, you know, that those two things or something like that. Uh, he was a Trump supporter. And I read that, I read that in a Washington Post article. And I realized that, you know, our event, Light for America, one of the things we're going to do is honor the, the service of the Capitol Police. But we really do need to create an area, uh, a place where people who um, did not support what happened but it's also maybe feel uncomfortable showing up for an event that Nancy Pelosi organized. Um, they, there's gotta be something for them. And again, I'm not, I'm totally supportive of, of the, the official vigils, but again, I think that we need to create this area where people can just air out their concerns, their disagreements and not feel like they're gonna be jumped on 
and labeled racists and bigots and things like that. And so I just got involved because it's been my natural, um, my natural uh, life's passion to sort of understand people I, who strongly disagree with me and then work to find common ground. It's what I was trained to do and, and love doing for, for a long time. So uh, I also just hate the idea of all those, la those Latino kids in the United States you know, January 6th is now an awful thing. And I was like, come on, that's not fair. It's got to be still a, a happy day for them. It can't be forever a, a day of evil division and anger and violence. Well, I definitely appreciate the optimism. I think if there's one thing our world needs more right now is optimism and, and being able to channel that in a positive direction and, and you know, have spaces where we can have these conversations, even despite our differences, is really important. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, I appreciate so much that the both of you have been so generous with your time. As we're wrapping up here, just the last thing that I, I wanted to, to ask both of you as we're, we're heading into 2022, we're at the beginning of 2022, and I think it's always a good time to, uh, you know, uh, to think about things that we're, <laughs> our goals and aiming to work on for this year. So I was curious for the both of you, what what are your what do you recognize are your own blind spots what are what are things that you feel like you need to 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 work to understand better this year and how would you like to work on informing yourself better in in the year ahead Zainab, any thoughts on that oh thank you for letting her go first that's a hard question i'll have time to think. <laughs> oh blind spots where do i begin uh you know, it's, I've been doing this work for about seven years, and I feel like the longer that I stay in this work, the more I realize how much I don't know and how, much, how many more opportunities there are to expand on this work in a more like, constructive, cohesive way. I think one of the things I want to work more on this year is um, being more conscious of living in the present. I think in the past, I've really sort of been focused on planning for the future, um, and I think one thing this pandemic has done is really made me realize that, you know, it's, it, uh, we can't really afford to you know, just, just ignore like, you know, the moment that we're living in thinking that we're going to have like all of eternity to, to make those calls or build those bridges or, or reach out to groups or organizations that would be helpful for us to, to be connected to, especially when it comes to healing and uniting our country and working on causes, like especially social justice causes, right? One of the big big focuses of our organization is justice, working towards justice for, for all. Um, that's part of the Pledge of Allegiance and we need to live up to that um, within our country. Um, we have not done that historically ever really in the history of our country. And if we love our country, patriotism requires that we, we uphold that. Um, so I think working more intentionally towards that um, is something that I, I definitely wanna do. As, as that uh, Sufi poet, Lauren Hill said, how are you going to win if you ain't right within? You ain't right within, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David, you had some time to think about it. Where, what, are you, what are those blind spots that you recognize yourself as you're, as you're doing this, this work, uh, bringing folks together? Well, I would definitely say our, our major blind spot would be taking this idea and finding, I don't really, I, I don't really think I, I my job now is to sort of create a nonprofit um, by myself and make this, you know, something all about me and, you know, and, and my partner, Corey. What I'd like to do is find out who the partners are out there who want to kind of help us grow this and maybe even adopt it as their idea. That would be my dream. Now, obviously, 
I'm going to grow, grow this idea however we can. But I think the more likely way forward, since I just literally started this in November, um, what would be to find out who are the potential partners out there who who could really kind of embrace this and this idea and 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 I could support them in whatever way, but but make it theirs. Um, and I'm certainly happy to you know work for you know work on it full time. But it just that it seems like this is such a I think I used this I this terminology before a no brainer. Like we cannot allow this day to be a forever day of anger and division. And who are those who are those organizations? And they're probably organizations that I hadn't thought of yet. So um, in terms of a blind spot, I need to really understand who's out there and figure out who, who can help me. And then in the end, just see where this goes and be ready to pivot and shift and take this in directions that maybe I haven't thought of so far. So far. Great. Well, I hope that for anybody who's listening to this, you know, you got you got David's permission to uh, hit him up with a bunch of emails with all sorts of suggestions. Can, of can I give our organization <laughs> website? It's uh, yes, of course. Please light the number four America dot org. Light the number four L I G H T L I G H T for America dot org. And actually, when the other blind spot I have is understanding other faith perspectives on January sixth. I'm very familiar with the with the um, Christian perspective and why it's just horrible and unjust and why we need to speak up on it. But I think as I go forward, I want to learn more about the Sikhs and the Hindus and, and their uh, ideas on light and justice and faith and enlightenment. Um, uh, and also, I, I think I probably need to learn a little bit more about the atheist uh, world I worked with uh, the American Humanist Association uh, in past in my previous incarnation and would love to know more about them too. Great. Well, I'm glad that this conversation has been an opportunity for you and Zainab to connect. And I hope that that uh, the conversation with CARE continues to keep going and, and grow there on a local level, if not on a national level. Um, Zainab, ways that, uh, that folks can connect with CARE's work out in the community? We'd love to connect and hear back from the, the broader community, the public. Um, to reach the CARE office in Maryland, you guys can reach us at mdoutreach at care.com. That's C-A-I-R. I have people who have tried to reach out to me and they're spelling it C-A-R-E. And I'm like, no, but C-A-I-R. So mdoutreach at care.com. And then you can also visit our website to learn more about the organization, what our mission, our vision, our principles are, our core principles of operations. Our website is www.cair.com. And thanks again for letting us be part of this conversation. Oh, yeah. No, this was great. I appreciate both of you um, being part of it. And, and really, I, I think it's, it's a I, I really hope that in another year's time, uh, if we have a, another chance to, to do a program again um, uh, this first week of January 2023, that we do have uh, a, a more hopeful and united look on on this date and what it means um, for our country um, that we've taken the 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 less the really lessons of the 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 violence and terrible things that happened on that day 
and can turn it to a moment for for justice as well as for healing. Amen, sir. Inshallah, as they say. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> God willing. There we God go. willing. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, I, I wish you uh, a wonderful and fruitful year to the both of you. Happy, happy New Year to both of you. Happy New Year. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests Zainab and David. Learn more about Zainab's work with CARE at care.com, that's C-A-I-R dot com, and David's initiative Light for America at light, the number four, America dot org. At the website, you can find info about their interfaith vigil at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th at 7 p.m. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. If you're listening to this over at TacomaRadio.org, you can also find our archives for past shows or check us out on your podcast aggregator of choice. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish, and you can keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week. Streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.